love to hear the scripture read, and uh, it's great that um, we make time for public uh, reading of the scripture. That's one of the elements of true worship, in fact. And as you heard Luke 6 read, I, I wonder if you were listening to it with just slightly different ears. Uh, when I came across it in my study uh, this past week, uh, looking for a scripture reading that would uh, supplement our study, I was reading it and I couldn't help but think that uh, the things that the, the Lord there commands us to do and the things that he commands us to avoid are a perfect example of two kinds of worldviews, two kinds of lifestyles. You've got the under-the-sun kind of worldview and lifestyle and above-the-sun worldview and lifestyle. Um, and uh, one follows the things that the Lord commands us to avoid, and the other follows the things that he commands us to do. <clears throat> I have to say that ever since I began my in-depth study of the book of Ecclesiastes, I've seen its truth come alive in my own life. And, and I'm hoping that, that you see more of that as well in yours. For example, when I suffer an injustice, and it makes no sense at all, I say to myself, well, that's under the sun living. What do you expect? And when I hear people talk about getting even or, or looking for ways to beat the system, I'm reminded again, well, that's under the sun kind of living. When people return evil for evil, call good evil and evil good. When I see someone run a red light, cut in a line, bully others to get what he wants, when I witness people make a fuss over absolutely nothing that they think is something, when I see how people are godless and they worship the creation rather than the creator, adopt satanic agendas, blame their problems on other people and their situations, I say, that's under the sun living. I'm also reminded of life above the sun, where God dwells in unapproachable light. He is high and lifted up, and he is absolutely unmoved by anything that takes place under the sun. A realm of eternity, a better country, and the fact that God saved me from this under-the-sun life and established a personal covenant relationship with me gave me new life, a new song, a new home, a new way to think, and he will, and in his will and, and, uh, and godly wisdom that he has given me to guide me, and a life of great reward that is waiting for me, a life where everything I do has eternal consequences and matters to God, I say that is a life that is above the sun. And now, I thought I occupy... Um, well, as I occupy, I should say, physical space under the sun. And I am subject both to its wearisome and monotonous cadence, as well as its random variety of positive and negative situations. I know that I don't belong to this world system. I'm not governed by its under-the-sun worldview, and therefore I don't have to participate in activity that's either sinful or futile. I can now redeem the times. I can make every second count with an above-the-sun worldview. And as I say, this thinking has consumed me of late, more so than usual because, because of my keen focus on Ecclesiastes. And sometimes I am pleasantly surprised 
that what comes to my mind in this regard, almost by reflex now, and I guess that's a good thing, you prayed for us as we ran, those of us, uh, a handful of us ran a seven-mile race yesterday called Savage, and it was aptly named. It had many obstacles, lots of water, lots of mud, and it, and it was hard work. I, I won't deny that. It was hard work, and I'm sure that my running mates are feeling just a bit sore and fatigued, maybe not as much as I am, but but we are this morning. We did enjoy ourselves working as a team, encouraging others to press on. But we were glad when it was over. Oh, yes. We kept looking for the mile markers. Hey, one of, the, one, one of our, our teammates said, there's a sign that says one mile completed. All right, another one would say six more to go. And, and then there was two, and then three, and then five. That, has pa- that passed us. And we love seeing those signs. We looked for them as we were running. And you can imagine our excitement when we hit the one mile to go marker, right? Gave us a second wind. But nothing was sweeter than when we reached the finish line together where the photographer was waiting to take our picture as we crossed it. We all felt great relief. We were exhausted, tired, hungry, but happy. From there, all participants walk past two tables where they receive their prize. A t-shirt that says Savage on it. And a medal. And at that point, the race reminded me, really, of, of a life of futility that the sage of Ecclesiastes speaks about. It was, to me, a tangible object lesson. Months of training. Then the arduous race itself. For what? A shirt that will say savage. That will eventually wear up and be cut up for rags. And a cheap medal that, that will take up space and eventually be thrown out. Where's that medal I want? I don't know. And by the way, we paid for these. Right? We paid for these. We didn't win anything we didn't earn. And I couldn't help but think, what a great illustration of the futility of life under the sun. A hard life with momentary pleasures that eventually turns into dust and is forgotten. That's it. There's Ecclesiastes breaking through my thought patterns once again. And it didn't stop. As I put the medal around my neck, I said to the guys, they'll vouch for me, I'm sure glad that my wreath is imperishable. (laughs) And I was reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9 where he said, Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who completes the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. That is the difference between life under the sun and life above the sun. Running in a way to receive an imperishable wreath is the product of and possible only by an above-the-sun worldview. And we'll see some of it implied in our text this morning. So let's go there. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 to 11. We devoted time to understanding last time the wise search 
or inquiry of the sage that he took up himself. He applied human wisdom, which is accessible to every person, and without bias and with all honesty, he looked to see whether life on earth is worth living, whether it produces value and lasting gain for all of one's toil under the sun. We Christians shouldn't hesitate then to invite non-Christians in our circles of life, in our sphere of influence, to consider this as well. We would, we, would be, we would do well to do that. It's part of our evangelistic efforts, in fact, to introduce them to their desperate state before God and, and also to Christ, their only Savior. We call them to see for themselves, challenge them to consider the logical conclusion of their way of life, and face facts of such a wise and honest investigation. And as you do, you might introduce them to Ecclesiastes. In fact, mull over with them what the sage does, his own search and his conclusions. We look now at verses 1 to 11, which is part of a larger section of specific areas that he is going to examine. His first stop, hedonism. Hedonism. And here's how I would sum up this text. A wise and wholehearted inquiry into hedonism reveals that it promises no more than immediate reward that is only proportional to one's toil and therefore futile. Now, let's, let's examine that line by line. It's a lot there. First of all, and you'll find this published in your bulletin, a sober and honest look into hedonism will prove that it offers no lasting satisfaction at all. That's verse 1. We find the, sage, the sage's honest inquiry here, and it'll continue throughout his book, and it, is indire it indirectly challenges his readers to participate, to consider what he's saying. People are either serious about finding out the meaning of life, or they're not. And those who aren't create a fantasy world that accommodates their lifestyle, believing certain things to be true that are not, and they pursue their dreams that will turn out in the end to be nightmares, hoping against hope that, they, that their desired destination, their station in life, is really out there somewhere along with what makes their lives worth living. But if they're willing to be honest with themselves, and face facts, the sage says that their eyes will be open. And while they'll no doubt find it to be a rude awakening, they'll be in a better position, in fact, the best position, to receive the only sure and lasting satisfaction there is. That's Christ and his offer of eternal life. So the sage takes up, through an honest search of, of of whether there's any lasting benefit to hedonism. And he applies all the faculties of human wisdom here. We read in verses 1 and 2, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's senseless. And of pleasure, what does this accomplish? Now he tells us up front, notice, how this challenge ends, before he even gets into the details about it, he dives into the realm of pleasure, he enjoys himself to the fullest, only to find that such an endeavor is absolutely futile, that laughter is senseless, pleasure 
accomplishes nothing. Now, he's not talking about laughter or pleasure as isolated responses to our everyday experiences. No, it's, it's neither sinful nor wrong to laugh, all right? Let's just, let's just, for the record, nor is it sinful or wrong to find pleasure in things. He's talking rather about a philosophy of life, a hedonistic worldview to be exact, that's characterized by foolish and cynical laughter and unrestrained pleasure. So, what is hedonism anyway? Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, the basic understanding of hedonism is very simple, the pursuit of pleasure. That's it, the pursuit of pleasure sensual self-indulgence. But in terms of a system of moral principles that governs a person's behavior, the dictionary goes on to explain hedonism as the, quote, ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life, end quote. Did you catch that? Pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Now, that might sound good to those who embrace it, but it couldn't be more dangerous for at least two reasons. Here are two reasons. One is that the definition of pleasure is left up to the individual. And that, in that case, a person can find pleasure in immorality or in something that's actually harmful either to himself or to someone else. So that's not good. Here's another reason. If pleasure is the highest good and aim of life, then an individual will stop at nothing to attain it, even to the detriment of his or her own life or possibly the lives of others. One glaring example of this is the addict. The addict. Now, I'm, I'm using psychological terminology here that everyone is familiar with, even though, biblically speaking, this is not accurate. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, biblically speaking, addiction is idolatry. Well, someone who's addicted to something worships it. That's what I mean by uh, addiction being idolatry. It's what one craves or desires or lusts after or longs for. And he'll stop at nothing to get it. Addicts will sell their own mothers to get another fix. And if you get in between an addict and his lusts, then you're in for trouble. So in some instances, say with a drug, one could develop a chemical dependency that makes the addiction that much stronger. But addictions don't start that way. Chemical dependence is the result of an abuse of one's addiction or idolatry. The, the basic problem is still the same. What one worships, craves, desires. You see, God created people as worshipers. Every person in the world is a worshiper. <clears throat> the issue is never whether someone worships something, but what someone worships, you see. And if one is not worshiping God, well, then he's worshiping something else. So Jesus made this very clear. He said, you cannot serve money and God because you're going to love one and hate the other. One's going to win out over the other. Now, those reasons that I just gave, those two, they're sound. 
I think they're right, but they're not the best reason why hedonistic pleasure is dangerous. I suppose it's possible, you see, that all hedonists out there could choose as their highest good something that's not immoral, something that's not harmful to themselves and others. And while that's not likely, it's possible, I suppose. And in that case, um, they, uh, they, uh, they might uh, not choose to, uh, to attain it at all costs, even to the detriment of other people as well. Again, not likely, but possible. So in that case, why else would this worldview be so dangerous if my two reasons really aren't the best reasons? Well, the sage's reason, which is the best, is this. Because such a lifestyle turns up empty. Turns up empty. It is a worldview that cannot promise eternal reward. So we can be sure that a hedonistic lifestyle in which a person craves and seeks out what he believes is the greatest good will, for him, not be Christ. Rather, it will keep him from coming to Christ. And this is why God calls us, then, to challenge people's faulty thinking, to poke holes in their secular worldviews by tracing their worldviews to their logical conclusions. This is what we do in evangelism. This, this is evangelism at its best and, and what God uses to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. I have no doubt that this evangelistic challenge is the ulterior motive of the sage himself. No doubt at all. Now let's look at verse 1 again, this time focusing on another element. A more literal rendering of the opening Hebrew words here of this verse is, I said in my heart... Now, the NASB interprets that as the sage speaking to himself, and that's correct. That's correct. But it also implies in this context something else that the NASB translation, I said to myself, misses. In this particular context of this passage, I said in my heart shows that the sage is being brutally honest with himself. There is no self-deception here. There's no desire to conduct a half-hearted or a biased inquiry with the intention of manipulating the facts to validate a hedonistic lifestyle. No. No, the, sage search, the sage's search is, is a heartfelt and honest one. Let me prove this to you. Look, look ahead to verse 3. First part of verse 3, the sage explains, I explored with my mind while my mind was guiding me wisely. And again, just to, be, to, 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 to get a better appreciation for the sense of what he's saying, the more literal rendering there of the Hebrew at this point is, I explored with my heart, and my heart was guiding me. Now you may or may not know that the heart is the control center of the person. It's where we do all our thinking and planning for everything. So the idea here is a conscious and deliberate search. He sailed right into a life of folly with wisdom at the helm, which allowed him to go only so far into it to satisfy the experiment. Notice also at the end of his test of hedonism, he makes it clear in verse 9, my wisdom also stood by me. 
So throughout this entire experiment, he kept his wits about him, making sure not to sink into utter ruin that this particular path of folly and hedonism leads to. In other words, he didn't pursue a hedonistic lifestyle in the way that hedonists do, with utter abandon, recklessly and carefree, throwing all caution to the wind and indulging dangerously. That's, that's not what he did. He honestly wanted to know whether there was anything lasting, any valued gain to all that one does in an effort to secure pleasure. That's it. And this is the kind of honesty that we need to ask people who live under the sun with no covenant relationship with God to have. It's not demanding much, beloved. And we can tell if someone's serious about knowing the reality of life and, and, and the limitations of an under-the-sun worldview. We can tell. I want to make a disclaimer at this point, okay, before we go on. To invite people to an honest inquiry into hedonism does not mean that we are encouraging them to be immoral. All right? That's not what we do in our evangelism. In this particular context of hedonism, and the sage isn't doing that either. I don't believe the sage himself really was in a position to enjoy the lavish lifestyle of kings. No, he was creating a fictitious lifestyle after the pattern of someone who had, namely, King Solomon. The sage walks us through the concept of hedonism, tracing with us its logical ends in the king's life in order to prove to us, well, that it's futile. So while the sage presents his experiment and his findings, we might say, don't try this at home. In fact, this is why God has seen fit to provide us with the book of Ecclesiastes, so that we know by positive proof that such a lifestyle is futile. And we can bring those who may be caught up in a hedonistic lifestyle already, or seriously thinking about it, to this text of Scripture, and reason with them and challenge them with the facts. Again, in our evangelism, we need to challenge people to honest inquiry, to see the logical ends uh, or conclusions of their worldview. It's a worthy challenge that we should put to any person that's not a Christian. Jesus challenged many this way during his public ministry. Um, on, uh, in one particular context, there was a rich young ruler and when this man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The, the implication, of course, is that he believed that he knew already. Was he just trying to trip Jesus up or was he trying to test his knowledge? Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe he was just sincere and he wanted to confirm what he believed to be true with the famed teacher. He was religious. Either way, Jesus responds by asking him to engage in honest inquiry into the matter of a hedonistic lifestyle. Yes. Knowing that this man thought himself to be blameless, Jesus proves to him that he is not with his first line of inquiry. He tells him, keep the law. So the man, of course, said that he had kept it from childhood. 
And Jesus then challenges him to an experiment to see if he was blameless or if he was really a lawbreaker and, in fact, guilty of breaking the first commandment, have no other gods before me. So Jesus says, all right, sell everything you possess and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And that rich man understood Jesus. It's obvious that he did by his response. Luke said he became very sad because he was extremely wealthy. The rich man didn't need to take up the challenge literally to know that he would fail. He was honest about the logical conclusions of such a challenge. But an honest, as honest as he was, the, the, the greater question now facing him is this. Are you serious about obtaining eternal life or not? And his response would tell us that he really wasn't. Since the sage has already made this searching inquiry into the hedonistic lifestyle in order to find out what it promises, he can tell us up front, in the form of a thesis, really, that it promises to disappoint. There is no lasting satisfaction to be had in this kind of lifestyle so let's see how he develops it. We come to the verdict. The verdict comes, you ought to know, from one who experienced hedonism at its best. This is not a, a little bit of hedonism, a little bit of pleasure. It's not dabbling here, but, but, then, but then refraining. This is all-out, full-in, hedonistic lifestyle. And after all, who else uh, better than a hedonist at his best? Uh, would we want to know if such a life is worth living? So in verses 3 to 9, the sage sets out to transform his environment in order to facilitate his enjoyment of life. He engages in this comprehensive search as only the king of Jerusalem could. Remember, he takes on the persona of King Solomon. And he was not only the wisest, but he was the richest person. And he creates this heightened hedonistic context. It's one that befits a king. This is royalty, and royalty would be his laboratory now. The opulence of a king's life in the ancient world was unmatched. We would liken a, uh, this to maybe fame in America or, or, um, or the life of a, of a billionaire. And we get an idea of just how lavish this life was. Look at verse 3. We'll run down. We'll run down the list. He says, I refresh myself with wine, which aided him in seizing foolishness. No surprise there. He also invested heavily in real estate, building not one, but many houses for himself, verse 4. He planted vineyards and, verse 5, made for himself gardens and parks in which he planted all kinds of fruit trees. In verse 6, he had his own forest with his own irrigation system for the forest. Verse 7, he possessed slaves and flocks and herds larger than anyone who preceded him in Jerusalem. Verse 8, he amassed large quantities of silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. He hired his own personal choir, male and female singers. He liked music. He enjoyed many concubines. And we read in verse 9, he became greater, increased in more than all who had preceded him in Jerusalem. 
This was a hedonistic lifestyle. The best there was didn't get any, any better than this. And I want to say that these pleasurable things on the sages' list, they're not in and of themselves bad or immoral, except for the concubines, of course. <laughs> Only that pursuing them for lasting gain is futile. That's his point. And, and don't miss the value of, of presented, uh, of, of pres um, that, he, that hedonism at its best presents, which is what we want. Again, if we're going to truly test its advantages, right? We need to go to the best there is. The sage says, in essence, take it from somebody who's had it all. It doesn't deliver. And that brings us to the third section. Hedonism promises no lasting value, no lasting valued gain, and therefore amounts to a grand waste of time. Verses 10 and 11. In this last section, he brings up the results of his search. There are first the preliminary results in verse 10. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. That was my reward for all my labor. He says that actually there is pleasure that comes from our toil. Huh. Maybe you weren't expecting that. Well, let me remind you that, that all false satanic worldviews are built on some kernel of truth. That's to make the world itself attract, worldview itself attractive. Satan is clever. Moses said that the serpent was, was more cunning than any animal of the field that God had made. So he knows that he, he won't deceive the hearts of fallen humanity with the obvious. Take this poison. It will kill you over time, but it tastes great. Right? That's... That's not a, a great, a great uh, approach. No, remember Paul identifies him as the great counterfeiter, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He produces counterfeit truth, and it is very, he's very good at it. He dresses it up in truth's clothes. So the error is subtle and inviting. And he doesn't need much error to keep you in your condemnation. How much? How much error kills, condemns? Well, let me put it this way. A religion that is 99.9% .9 accurate, nearly indistinguishable from Orthodox Christianity, but differs only in that it teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ and good works is enough to keep you in your sins and on your way to hell. Now, this all makes sense. There has to be an appeal to any condemning lifestyle if people are going to embrace it and, at all. It must promise something that they desire and deliver on that promise. Here's what a hedonistic lifestyle promises. Instant satisfaction. And you know, it delivers on that promise too. How wonderful is that in an instant society where we want what we want instantly at the push of a button or swallow of a pill or swill of a drink? The king actually had to work harder, of course, and longer to, for the pleasurable return of his labor, but you, know, you, you couldn't construct buildings and giant irrigation systems overnight. But people today... 
People today can get instant gratification through drugs, sexual immorality, reinventing themselves by a change of clothes, hairstyle, and different pronouns. Oh, you, you don't have to be rich to be a hedonist, by the way. Now, there are many ways to strive for one's ultimate pleasure. Now, before you start thinking that there may be something to this kind of lifestyle, and maybe you should start living it as, as royal as you possibly can, hold on. This is not the final conclusion of the matter. It's just a prelim which is not as, as great as you might imagine. Let me, let, let me uh, help you to understand exactly the nature of this pleasure that the hedonist reaps for his labor. Okay, This is the nature of pleasure, of, of a hedonistic pleasure. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. Immediately is not the same as lasting. People who are enamored with this lifestyle miss this point. They miss the difference. Immediate satisfaction does not equate to lasting satisfaction. Also, it's proportional. Proportional. The last few words of verse 10 express pleasure as one's immediate reward or portion. Pleasure is a byproduct of our labor. So the amount of pleasure you experience corresponds directly to the amount of labor that you put in. You get out of it what you put into it. An ounce of effort gets you an ounce of pleasure, no more. And this ties in with the fleeting nature of hedonistic pleasure. You have to keep working to have more. And that leads to the fact that it's addictive. The nature of a hedonistic lifestyle dictates that the hedonists become dependent on pleasurable circumstances and experiences. Finally, it's deceptive. It's deceptive. Pleasure that you experience leaves you wanting more when it's over. There is a paradox to hedonism that you should know. It's that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less you find. Oh, yes. I'll prove this to you. What this means is that the initial thrill that one experiences is not as thrilling the second time around and drastically less so the third and fourth time. And that's because something changes in the thrill-seeker. He gets used to the thrill and it becomes old. It's another one of those, I've been there, done that moment. To relive the initial thrill, well, one needs to put more work into it. One pill doesn't do it anymore, you have to take three. And the next time, it'll be five in combination with two other different pills. And this is why, beloved, we have an opioid epidemic in this country and so many are being killed or dying. Let's be clear. The search for pleasure at any expense can shorten your life by years. And if you don't end your life early, you'll wear it out in the process of thrill-seeking, either from a deteriorating disease that you contracted in reliving pleasure or simply by putting your body through its paces in your goal to experience more of it. It is no way to live, which brings us finally to the ultimate conclusion of the sage in verse 11. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was futility and striving after the wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. His conclusion of the data from his experiment 
that was guided by wisdom to keep him from falling prey to the deceptive lure of the hedonistic lifestyle is that hedonism is a fantasy. It's a sham that cannot promise lasting results. Striving for pleasure as the goal in life is as practical and beneficial as chasing after the wind. And that says it all. We think about this. We need to remind ourselves that Ecclesiastes is part of a larger corpus of material, that is the Bible. And of course, the Bible is redemptive in nature. So I would like to end or bring this, uh, draw this to a close by pointing out that Jesus concurs with the concept that the sage develops here, and he, he, we find it in his concept of reward, Jesus' concept of reward. Let me explain that. The sage uses the word portion or reward, is a better translation, to capture this immediate, fleeting, proportional, addictive, and deceptive nature of hedonistic pleasure. And Jesus was fond of this word as well, using it in two different ways in the Gospels, one of which is the exact same way that the sage uses it in our text. Pleasure that, has, that is immediate, but fleeting, proportional, addictive, and deceptive in nature. Perhaps one of the best contexts in which Jesus uses this is Matthew 6, where he teaches us about hypocritical acts of righteousness, a very under-the-sun characteristic. There are acts done in the name of God, but really they're done for selfish ends. And the means, uh, and that means that false worshipers use it to get satisfaction in their lives. Just uh, a Jesus' first example is of one who does charitable acts for the poor in order to show uh, people who are watching, observers, that they are um, magnanimous. So they do this for show in order to impress people for their praise. Listen to verse 2, Matthew 6. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they will be praised by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The hedonist puts himself out as much as he, he has to in order to get the proportional return of pleasure, which in this case is the praise of men. He says the same thing in verse 5. And when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And it's the same in Jesus' third example for fasting in verse 16. Now, when you fast, don't make, don't make a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they distort their faces so that will be noticed by people when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. There are a few common denominators in all these three examples of hedonistic behavior. These are hypocritical acts, that's one. They're done by hypocrites, that's two. They're done for the purpose of soliciting praise of men, that's three. Men, uh, praise that will bring them pleasure, a pleasurable outcome that they desire. But another common denominator, and the more important one for our purposes, is Jesus' verdict, which is sobering and worth considering. He calls their satisfaction for, recogni for recognition their reward. 
He specifically says they have received it in full. And that seems like an odd thing to say. But Jesus is referring to the nature of the under-the-sun worldview and that the only reward those who live by that worldview can hope for is at best immediate but fleeting, proportional, addictive, and deceptive pleasure for all that they do. There's, there's more. Jesus' statement that they have received their reward in full implies that they have forfeited a greater reward, an eternal reward, in a better country. A reward that's not proportional to their work. In fact, it's not even earned, but it's given as a gift. How do we know that this is what Jesus implies? Because Jesus uses the same terminology in the same context to speak of this greater eternal reward that is guaranteed to those who have a biblical worldview, an above-the-sun worldview. He begins in Matthew 6 this way. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. That's a different reward. That's a greater reward. This is a reward that God gives to those who are humble, who practice righteousness without hypocrisy, for the goal of pleasuring the Father. And that belongs to those who are born again. This reward can be immediate. It can be temporal. For example, in verse 6, Jesus tells us how to pray without hypocrisy and not for show. And he says, as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, pray to your father who, in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the reward in this case would be an answer to prayer. But there is also an eternal reward that is always looming. It's not immediate, but it is guaranteed. It is a reward in heaven. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount regarding persecution, for example, that we receive on account of him, rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. This eternal reward in, is in heaven, and it's great. It's to experience in full what it means to be sons of the Most High, and it cannot be lost. The only life that promises this eternal gain and satisfaction is a redeemed life. The life that is born again and enjoys intimate communion with the triune God. It's a life that comes to those who have repented of their sin and trust in the work of Christ alone for acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. It's not proportional to any work it's rather disproportional because we can do nothing to earn it. God's gift is his salvation to us by grace alone. It is the opposite of hedonistic pleasure. And God has revealed it to the world in his gospel. Father, we thank you for this time together that we could come and understand the writer to the to Ecclesiastes and to understand that the satisfaction of life and its valued gain lies really in a relationship with you. We pray, 
O God, that we would not forget this in our own Christian lives as we walk in the narrow way, as we fight the good fight. For there is much that has infiltrated the churches in our day that would sway many Christians away from this firm and, and glorious truth. We pray also that we would, we would learn how to, to be wise in the way we present this truth to unbelievers, as Jesus himself did to the rich young ruler and to many others. Give us insight, give us wisdom in knowing how best to do that for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.